Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. <laughs> All right, mate, are you ready? Yep. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today runs a long short hedge fund and a Bangladeshi venture capital fund. He's also written uh, maybe the modern male millennial version of Carrie Bradshaw's Sex in the City paper. He's the artist formerly known as Super Magatu. It's Dan McMurtry, and we're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Thanks for having me on, Toby. <laughs> How are you, Dan? Very good. Really appreciate you taking the time. Big fan of the show. Uh, my absolute pleasure. Uh, let's talk about Tyro, your long, short hedge fund first. So uh, you, you cover uh, four themes, consumer, healthcare, industrial, technology. Can you just take us through a very high level? Why do you focus on those themes and what's interesting about each of them? Um, I mean, there's a few angles you can take on that. I, I think one of them is there's a lot of dispersion in all of the sectors. So there's there's trading opportunities. There's also a lot of dispersion in financials, but uh, we don't have a specialty in that. And uh, also, you generally need a lot of leverage to get a high nominal return. Um, uh, we really want to focus. There's a lot of things you can spend research time on when you're doing bottom-up fundamental research. And so our way to think about what we're going to devote time to is by focusing on two things, big secular trends that we think are going to really drive how economics are occurring throughout a value chain and then the value or supply chain itself. We think increasingly industrials, technology, consumer and healthcare are blending together. There's that very popular meme about every company needs to be a tech company now. And, you know, to some degree that's true. Um, and at other degrees it's not, but it does mean in certain times when technologies from one industry to the other are moving into the other industry, um, it's going to change the competitive positioning of the market a lot. And that is very important, particularly as you look at public versus private deals right now. We spend a lot of time looking at private in addition to public. Um, and so we just think there's a lot of overlap there. We see common themes. We see common drivers. Um, and we think there's a lot of synergies between covering those spaces. There are certain things within those sectors we don't cover. We tend to cover specific subsectors. Um, so we don't do science-based biotech, for example, within healthcare, but a, a cash flow-based healthcare business or a healthcare sector special situation we will participate in. Um, we also tend to not do as much SaaS. We cover them, but I just have never been able to get comfortable with the valuation. So it's never you know, going to be a huge bet for us, I don't think. Yeah, it's hard to plug in those growth rates. And uh, that, that I think that that's been a differentiator over the last few years. Folks have been able to it accept those growth rates and, and, and employ them have done very well. Uh, when you're looking in, say, consumer, what? so just give us a flavor of how you think about consumer. Yeah. So in consumer and tech, um, well, and the others too, but in consumer and tech specifically, we spend a lot of time really trying to understand specifically what motivates the customer purchasing decision. What does that company customer relationship really look like? A lot of the times it's a little counterintuitive or there's some nuance that you miss if you're just reading research reports. <clears throat> So we spend a lot of time going and talking to customers, talking to salespeople. We like to go to conferences that are not finance conferences. So if we can find an industry-specific conference, um, we're going to go to that. Um, we really like turnarounds of strong brands. A big position for us in the last year was Papa John's. 
Um, and we think that was an interesting situation because you had massive footprint, a brand that was extremely popular, sometimes for bad reasons, um, but had been run very poorly compared to comps. And we know a lot of people in the uh, franchise business, and it was a situation where the bar was much lower than the market um, really expected. Um, so we really like turnarounds. We really like strong brands where there's something about the customer-consumer relationship that is unique. Um, and, um, and we really like you know, repeat purchases more than high-ticket high price items. Um, there's things like Peloton and, and companies like that that I think are great businesses that people have done very well in it. I'm not as comfortable underwriting those situations personally um, just because I think it's such a small number of absolute customers and you know, a, a competing product or you know, a news story or something like that could potentially permanently impair the business. I don't think that's as risky with a company that sells 25 different types of candy bars or something like that. It's a little easier to underwrite. Um, and so we tend to avoid, you know, some of these high, high ticket price item companies. You know, we, we haven't participated in things like Restoration Hardware or, or Peloton or, um, you know, any of the luxury names so much just because I, that's something that we don't understand as well. But um, we tend to focus on things that we think, you know, 90% of the population is buying that we think is really popular. We, we also really like situations on long and short side where we think there's a big perception gap between kind of New York, Connecticut hedge fund people and the rest of the world. So, you know, there was a point in time where a lot of hedge funds were saying, and Sellside was saying that, you know, everyone in the United States is gonna be shopping in a Whole Foods. And we just were looking at income and wealth and we're like, well, that's not possible. Um, and so those are types of situations. And, and a lot of the times I think, um, we don't think we have an edge on any of these names at any, it, on, the, on an average stock, on an average day, we, we do not think we have an edge. A lot of what we're looking for is really doing our research first, completely independent of what we're going to trade, and then waiting for the market to make some sort of mistake. So usually it's some very scary headline that you peel it back, um, and it's really not anywhere near as bad as people think. Or you get an incremental piece of information that really increases the probability that your thesis is correct, and the market doesn't incrementally price kind of that probability change. Um, so those are two things we're really, we really focus on, um, uh, particularly in consumer, because these are very emotional uh, names and there's a lot of retail money and there's a lot of, you know, people go from this is the greatest brand ever to this brand is dead and will never come back in a month very frequently. Consumers or investors? Both. Um, consumers, I mean, consumers tend to be, you know, I think that's probably the high, high ticket price item thing is, is a little scary to me is I think in certain consumer categories, you see big shift in terms of what people are buying. Um, in others, you know, an, the street will freak out, but then if you actually think about it and you look at some of these businesses, a nightmare quarter is 6% lower sales, which might actually be 3% lower volume with some discounting. And so if you think about what is, you know, is that franchise really impaired permanently? Is this a dead business? I think that's a little bit of a jump from kind of a 3% volume decline. And yet the street makes those assumptions very, very frequently. Um, and so when you have a setup like that on kind of the, the, the sentiment side where people are really freaked out over something that is not a material volume shift, where there's a clear short-term issue, and particularly if there's a management team in place or a new management team in place that has a very tangible plan and, and, and course of action that they're actually going through and executing tangibly, um, we really like to get along those situations. And we like to short kind of the opposite. We like to short most situations where people start to assume everyone's going to have this product and things like that. And you have to be careful because there are Netflixes and things like that 
where that's a really dangerous bet. But that comes back to really understanding what that customer purchasing relationship is um, and kind of where is the sentiment of people in the industry and people buying the product versus where the street is. And so a lot of the times our, our big long and short positions are something where we think there's been a marginal shift up or down in the business, but the street has completely over-exaggerated that. And usually that's amplified by a positioning issue. I, I don't think that most stock price moves are really entirely fundamentally driven, particularly on like a one day, one week basis. Um, and so we, our approach across the board is to really try to understand certain businesses, you know, the pizza business, something like that. It's not, pizza hasn't changed in, I don't know how long. I mean, Domino's has rolled out an app and done a great job with fortressing and all of that. But, you know, I don't know of a really a new pizza other than adding incremental pieces of chicken onto different pizzas uh, in a long time. So um, when we see Papa John's go from, I don't even know where, to 40, and then it rallies all the way to 60 on, on an M&A rumor, you know, at 40, it's a pretty obvious buy if, if you're not getting scared about the situation. And at 60, when they're assuming it's going to get bought out, you know, you could run whatever M&A math you want. Like, there's no way that thing was going to get bought there for over 60, 65 bucks. So you really didn't have any upside. It was a clear sell. And then it went right back to 40. And meanwhile, with that stock, management had laid out a plan and a timeline. It was very clear what needed to happen. And the street kind of every month had a new narrative for how this Papa John's turnaround was working or not working. And, you know, when they first announced it, they needed to come out and they needed three months till um, they had their franchisee meeting. And so you can't turn around a franchise-based business unless you get the franchisees to buy in. And so in the course of the part of the plan where we have to get with our people and get everybody on board, you know, the street sort of generated, I don't know how many narratives. And so we're just following the business. And so it's kind of like 80% of our time is following the business. And then we check in on what the street's doing. And I have no idea what the street's talking about half the time on some of these names, because I'm like, I've been talking to people at the company and the industry franchisees, and they have no idea what the, what the street is talking about. And sometimes the street's right, but um, we really like those situations where we think there's some big like dramatic psychological game happening um, in terms of how people are trading a name. Um, and especially if that's amplified by a lot of positioning and some of agency risk on money managers parts that's causing those price swings to be wider. Um, and that's, that's kind of how we, we cross kind of the fundamental view with the, when we actually trade. Um, yeah, I think you, you pointed out that the last great innovation in pizza might have been sticking some garlic salt onto the uh, yes. marinara sauce. So this is a true point. So when, and it's still online, when Domino's, right now everybody loves Domino's, but people forget that for a long time that was not the case and it was not a good performing company. And one of the first things- The box and the, the pizza thing, tasted roughly the same. Yes. So one of the first things that happened when new management came in is they issued a press release and they did some calls and things and the press release, which is still online on kind of an old version of the Domino's website, basically says our pizza sucks. <laughs> And we're going to reinvent our, our recipe and all of this. And what they did is the classic um, trick that every amateur and professional chef know. And I, a lot of people in my family are chefs. My uncle runs restaurants, things like that. And, uh, you add garlic salt. So they put garlic salt on the crust and they made a couple slight tweaks. And then they started going to college campuses and offering aggressive discounts because they're like, college students will buy $5 pizzas. And, you know, they just ran. And I was a beneficiary of those $5 pizzas, um, as anyone's with the video feed will see. So... <laughs> Um, and then, you know, I think six years later, Papa John's just made that exact same press release, which I was so funny to me. I was looking at them side by side and they're even worded very similar. It's, you know, this, well, we're going to slightly change the sauce and we're going to put garlic salt on it. So when you're, when you're constructing your portfolio, uh, your long and short 
but I, I gather from the from what you've sent through that it's there's no explicit pair trade, but are you sort of by by limiting yourself to those four themes or those four sectors, are you sort of ha- do you have an ad hoc kind of uh, pair trade hedge when you're putting those long and short positions on? Or do you think about it in those terms? Um, kind of. I mean, I think we we are trying to basically. I don't. I don't believe in alpha. I think everybody's capturing some beta, and it might be a beta we can't quantify explicitly or something like that. But I think there's some factor you're trying to trade, even if you're a bottom-up fundamental guy, which might upset some people. And so for us, you know, we are trying to capture, you know, there's some trend we're trying to capture a return, a return stream from, and there's some pricing dynamic that's happening that allows us to get, we think, a little bit of extra gearing on that. And so if something is, and from that perspective, we want to look at, when we're taking a position, what what are we actually hedging if we short it? I think, you know, the beta, like the regression calculated beta of name may not change that much. The valuation and the trading dynamics may change significantly. So if you're using one, two, three, four, even five factor models, especially in small and mid caps, you may not notice that the liquidity profile of the stock has changed dramatically and it's going to trade very differently going forward. So it's hard to just especially in small and mid caps when you want to be relatively concentrated, we tend, we tend to take five to 10% long positions at cost. You can get into a lot of trouble, and we did, I think, early on in our track record, thinking you can perfectly net these things. And so what we've generally done is we're a lot slower about taking positions. We're a lot more conscious about what's the absolute gross positioning we have, um, and not so much about just pairing them, because a lot of times you find a clever pair. This company's doing well, this company's doing poorly. But the pricing and the liquidity and the short uh, interest have already really priced that in. So opposite can, yeah. Yeah, you can get hurt really badly betting on the winner and shorting the loser, at least, especially on a one, three, six month time frame. Um, and your IRR ends up being terrible; it eats up a bunch of margin. So if we if we want to take a big position in a you know going from how you go bottom up to top down portfolio construction, we typically want to have you know around fifteen long positions. And there'll be some starters and some full positions. When we start, it's going to be you know a two to four percent long position. Um, we have certain criteria around how much risk weighting we want each name. We are comparing that against um, what's in the book already, and also what the rest of our watch list is doing. So most of our trading behavior is motivated by something else in our watch list becoming a better risk reward, better quality for price, something like that. Um, as we move up towards a max at cost position of 10%, we need to get a lot more serious about looking at what else is in the book, particularly what liquidity risk we're taking, what beta risk are we taking, what bottom up risk are we taking. So things really need to be right for us to have a max position on it. And a max position, you know, there's a very big difference between having, you know, one 10% position, or if it ru- it's doing well and you have a 15 or a 20% position, there's a very big difference between having one of those and having five of those, right? And so we need to think a lot about um, how we're how we're sizing that, and so if if we have, as we approach a ten percent position and multiple ten percent positions, we're generally going to want our gross to be lower. Um, as I said, it's really hard to actually robustly quantitatively hedge a ten percent position, especially if you have multiple of them. So generally, the approach is going to be, you know, if we have if we had six ten percent at cost positions on, that might be almost all of the long exposure we have. Um, and so we want to really think about when we're, whenever we're concerned or we're getting more concentrated, we want to pull gross back. Um, or we all, we'll also look at, you know, can we use options? Can we use other structures to hedge the underlying to specific risk scenarios we're seeing? Um, but we think it's, it's, it's pretty dangerous to just try to say, okay, well, I have 15 positions. My beta is this. I'm going to short that much S&P or something like that. 
or I'm going to have a bunch of 3% small shorts that I think are going to net that out. I think you really need, like I think John Hempton, Jim Chanos, other people like that do a really good job of having an adequately diversified short book against their long book to where it actually works. But unless you're really shorting 100, you know, 50, 100, 200 names, you can get in a lot of trouble with that. Um, and so on the short side, we're going to tend to have just before you go into the short side, let's let's talk yep. about your longs. Let's talk about what, what's an ideal long at ten percent. What does that look like for you? Sure. So an ideal long, basically, all the fundamental stuff needs to be. We got to like the business. Um, we got to think it's at a discount to kind of a. It needs to be at a discount to some sort of fire sale liquidation value. We we use sort of different different valuation techniques depending on the situation, but also discount to where we think worst case scenario is one one type of valuation and the other you don't thing mean, is actually, you don't mean fire sale liquidation of the business you mean fire sale liquidation of the stock by by the holders of the stock or do you mean liquidation of the business liquidation of the business so uh well not necessarily liquidation but we're looking we want to look at private market value would be the traditional term for that so we're looking at art is it a discount to um where we think the business could be sold or, or something could be done there um and also what's the, and then you know, so that's kind of are we buying something cheap? And then what's the actual quality of the business? What's the ability to reinvest capital and grow this thing? So if we're, you know, if we can buy a high quality business cheap, I think one of the things that we've learned a lot over time and we focus on is, you know, if you buy a, a really high quality business marginally cheap over a multi-year time frame, your returns tend to be much better than buying, you know, a C minus business very cheap. Because um, the other thing is, you know, I think with C minus businesses, particularly if you're concentrated, you're actually taking a lot of agency risk on management because there's a lot of ways for management and bankers and private equity and a lot of other players to skim out those returns that your spreadsheets say should be there. And we've gotten burned on that in the past versus with a high quality business, management's incentives are naturally more aligned to equity accrual, assuming that, you know, the actual proxy statement bears that out um, because there is a long term value creation potential at that business versus, you know, this is just a, uh, you know, cigar butt. Um, so we look at kind of, we want to do kind of a cigar butt type analysis. We want to do a quality type analysis. Um, if all of that checks out, we really like it. Um, that's kind of something we'll look at taking a position on. Where we're going to look at getting a lot more positioned is when we see, especially on the long side, we see structural under positioning. So we look a lot at, we use factor analysis to look at where our capital outflow is going out of on a sector or something like that, you know, whatever size sector, whatever factor it is. And when you see structural outflows from a given sector, there's good reasons to think there are going to be bottom-up mispricings. Now, caveat to that is it's very hard to capture that because when the factor back when it bounces, the trashy stocks always lead in the short term, and that can be very frustrating. So you need to actually have a long-term time frame. So we like to see lopsided positioning when people are very underpositioned to subsector or a sector. That's when we're going to be looking to take a little more, um, a little more exposure, and particularly if we think that that business is in the wrong basket. So we look a lot at who's actually trading the stock. Um, what does that look like? What ETFs? What are their mandates? What type of active managers are in it? What's the actual float? How does liquidity change? And so some of our best long positions have been a situation where, you know, the stock was very overpriced. There was a short thesis. Stock went down. Short sellers got very emboldened by the stock going down. They continue to add to their short. Meanwhile, the average daily trading volume of the stock starts to collapse. And all of a sudden, the business is actually doing fine. It was overvalued, but it's fine. And you have a situation where there's people who are short like 20 days of stock uh, of ADV and that sector is kind of bottoming out and other comps are starting to put good numbers up. 
And it's clear that this extrapolation from overpriced needs to correct to doomsday is wrong. That's the situation where we're going to put a max position on because we have a, we know we have we have a lot of known structural buyers. We know the fundamentals are strong, and we know that um, the capital flows are already borderline apocalyptic. Um, and that's really when we're going to look to to kind of get really really hefty in a position. Um, and we also pay attention a lot to what is the kind of catalyst flow and, and new structure going to be. So um, value investors tend to get in trouble because they'll have a theory about okay management's going to do this to unlock value. They're going to they're going to do all these things, and this this is this future is going to happen. And, and a lot of times, um, you go talk to management, or you talk to people around the company, and nobody has any idea what these money managers are talking about. I mean, I've seen 700-page threads on Corner Berkshire and Fairfax, where nobody in the industry has any idea what these value guys are talking about. And, and it's not that the value guys are wrong about what should be done, but there's that's not in play. Nobody actually cares about that in the industry. And then those tend to become what we call boyer cried wolf stocks, where like you've started the same thesis for three, four, five years, and then those can actually become great theses because sometimes what happens is like year four or five of the thesis in the investment community, management actually comes out and says, "Yeah, we're going to do that now." And so an example of that last year was Recro Pharma, which for a long time a lot of people were talking about. They had the CDMO manufacturing business, and for years I've heard this stock at this pitch at least since 2015. People are like, "Well, we're going to sell the CDMO and get rid of the bad." drug development company. And management was never on board with that. They were very explicit about, no, we're going to develop drugs. We're going to take the cash flow from the cash business. And so when management finally came out and said, yeah, we're going to do this, the stock kind of traded up, but no one at, a, at most hedge funds could take that to their boss because the boss is going to be like, are you kidding me? How many times have we heard this idea? Right? So we like things like that where there's some sort of psychological or structural social arb where I'm like, this is a good thesis, and also I know most people right now cannot pitch it in their shop. Um, and those, so those situations will really like dial up to 10% when management really hits you over the head with, okay, we're going to do that thing now, and nobody's paying attention because they've been burned too many times. But let's, we need to be able to validate that. Let's talk about shorts. So uh, yeah. you, you mentioned in the note that uh, it's, it's in some ways shorts are the reverse of what you're doing with the longs, but just take us through a short, an ideal short. Yeah. So... Um, on the short side, we really don't like shorting on valuation. We really don't like shorting frauds. I think the only thing you know you about don't short frauds. Not it's very rare. Um, and I'll short a fraud because the business is collapsing. I won't short a fraud because it's a fraud. Um, the only thing you know about a two billion dollar company that you think is a fraud is that they're really good at running a fraud. <laughs> They've built. Think about how hard it is to build a real business at two billion dollars. They've built nothing into $2 billion. These guys are very good. They have very powerful allies. Like, it doesn't happen on accident. And I think a lot of the times people have a naive approach to that and they just assume, like, oh, this is some huckster and he just, like, filed some paperwork and this is just magically this big thing. And I'm like, no, there's, there's a serious industry about how these things get produced. And you can track it. And then when, you know, when crypto, biotech in 2015, cannabis, when the, and you, they all go up correlated. And then when they all go down, they all go down at the same time. And, the problem is a lot, there's a lot of short sellers looking for these scamming companies, so the borrow rates have gotten insane. It's gotten really hard to time it and carry, do the carry. What we do like on the short side is competition-based theses. And these are really the only shorts we found that have worked consistently through this relentless bull market is when company one is just getting the crap kicked out of it by company two. And a lot of times it's a private company. And so the one we did last year was Grubhub. And so a lot of my family works in the restaurant business. I know a lot of people who own franchises or started franchise companies. Um, I understand that supply chain really, really well. And 
there were a few things that happened. One, we met with all the private competitors, and we see we saw that they were competing against Grubhub was competing against DoorDash and other players that had more money than them and absolutely no reason or need to make even a gross uh, margin on the on the sales. And they actually had a stated mandate where the intent was just to burn the thing down and take market share. And they were being like, frankly, kind of almost mean spirited in terms of they were poaching really key Grubhub employees. They were doing a lot of just extremely aggressive things. They were giving exploding offers to key employees right before very important periods of the year just to disrupt Grubhub operations. And so, and meanwhile, Grubhub is telling investors, you know, we're the disciplined player. And I was like, that's cool, but you're in the middle of the ocean saying I can swim longer than that guy. I don't really care. Neither of you can swim for months and you're not going to reach land. Um, and so we, we saw, you know, and what was weird was the stock prices remained somewhat resilient, even as we saw DoorDash and a couple other players take a massive amount of market share. Um, so that was one problem in terms of we, we knew they couldn't compete. And then at the same time, we were talking to a lot of restaurant operators and most of them were telling us that unless they sold two plus meals or three plus meals, they were taking a loss on every Grubhub order. And so I think, you know, there's Silicon Valley kind of usually starts with a good idea and then runs way too far with it. And I think recently there's been some startups where, you know, it's not just trying to extract a margin off of being a marketplace. They're trying to extract over 100% of the available margin in the market. And that just doesn't work because you can't steal from somebody who's dead. Uh, in a sense. And so you had a lot of people that, you know, were paying basically 18% um, uh, of sales, you know, or, or higher when their margin is 15%. And that just didn't work. And they were only doing it so they could advertise that if you went on their website and bought directly through them, you could get a discount in the set or whatever. Um, and so that's a competitive problem. And we also think that Grubhub in particular had a, going back to that New York, Connecticut bias, I think one of the reasons that Wall Street really liked Grubhub so much was simply that Seamless is the standard food ordering platform for, for bankers and consultants and hedge fund people. And so it was such a familiar use thing that nobody realized that nobody used Grubhub on the West Coast. You go to the West Coast, it's all DoorDash for the most part in, in San Francisco and other places. And they really didn't have that strong of a, of a hold on the market. They just had a very strong hold on a certain class of you know 23 to 30 year old um, you know, kids at these A-tier firms, and so people were extrapolating that, and, and they couldn't see themselves not using Seamless, and so they said, well, obviously everyone's going to use Seamless. And so that was a problem. So we knew, in terms of that customer relationship, we knew that the broad customer base was turning against Grubhub, or at least was just very indifferent. Um, we knew that the analysts on the sell side had a very strong bias, and, and they really were evasive. Every time we tried to make these arguments, the, the counter-argument was just, well, I don't think so. And I was like, cool, but I have quite a bit of data points here, and we've interviewed everybody, and they go, well, we, we just think that they're going to they're gonna hold it out, and then their margins are going to mean revert. And that might be true, but in order for you to get to that end point, that stock's going to have to take a massive bath, because they have to fight a war, win it, and then try to rebuild. And it was at the beginning of the war, and everybody was like, we think they're going to win the war. And I was like, cool, but they, you know, DoorDash has almost $2 billion just to come after you. Um, and so that's something where it's just a vicious competitive market. Everybody's already pricing in this consolidated market state. When the market is not consolidated, it's still in a, for, a place where people are going to compete for margin. Um, and we also thought nominal growth rates were just not going to be as high as some of the people want. I mean, sometimes these things, if their growth rates are high enough, people go, okay, the margin will work out. But the growth rates weren't, you know, these are not SaaS growth rates. Um, these are solid growth rates, but um, and so we just saw this this big lopsided thing, and we you know this was kind of I think 
two Q4s ago and going into that, going into the following year, and you just started to see everything on the fundamental side was turning against Grubhub and the street just really wasn't getting it yet. So the first, I think the stock went from like, you know, I think it was up to like 120, somewhere in there, and then it kind of dipped. And every level down, people thought it was fi finally time to buy the dip. And then the, the big thing that surprised me was I actually covered the short before their, um, I guess, one or two earnings calls ago. And I thought that they were going to come out and try to say, okay, we're kind of getting to the end of this game. Um, you know, Uber's dialing back some spending. DoorDash wants to go public, these things like that. And actually, they wrote one of the most shocking shareholder letters I've ever seen, where they just kind of admit, oh, hey, um, it turns out that if you have a business that scales one-for-one one revenue to costs on labor, <laughs> there's no unit economics there, which I'd been shouting about like a crazy person for years. Um, but they just admitted it. I've never seen a company just admit, like, yeah, our business model is, is torched, um, which is just really bizarre. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, that's an example of a short, you know, another another short, I won't spend very much time on this one, but you know, there's a company called Myriad Genetics that does genetic testing. And you know everybody's heard of 23andMe and these companies, and those are not medically robust genetic tests. Those are entertainment and disturbingly a law enforcement tool, I don't know, very sketched out by those companies. Um, but there are companies that do actual genetic testing. And so everybody knows Illumina Genetics, Illumina makes the sequencers, but Illumina doesn't do a lot of customer facing work. And my theory on that on why that is is basically genetic testing is so much more complicated than blood testing. Blood testing, you're getting two integers out. Genetic testing, you're getting terabytes of data potentially. And then the testing um, methods are constantly, not methods, but data analysis is constantly changing. And so there's a really heavy service uh, component to genetic testing in terms of how do you work with a local practitioner that's seeing patients all day? How does a, how does a a practitioner seeing patients all day keep up with a field that is changing week by week in terms of what the cutting edge standard is. And so you need to have the testing provider provide a lot of information and there needs to be very good record keeping and a lot of reconciliation among, okay, so, you know, two years ago when we did this test, this was the standard. Now the standard is this. So there's a super heavy service component. Um, Myriad was one of the first genetic testing companies. They tried to patent genetic tests. That got thrown out. That was a big problem for them. And what they've essentially tried to do is they tried to use branded tests. And this strategy just has not made sense to me for a number of reasons. One, there's just so many different genetic tests you can do. I don't understand why you think you're going to have like a brand name like Collegard, like Exact Sciences type product. Um, and two, they've been charging you know more, and um, they've had some issues with Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement fraud type issues I don't you know I'm again I'm not a fraud person but the big problem was you had two other players really and enter aggressively Ambry Genetics and Invite and I went and visited those companies and Invite in particular you know uh, Myriad is one of these kind of old golf course type sales models um, for the most part and Invite their you know warehouse in San Francisco looks a lot like an Amazon distribution center they have robots they've custom built to run the robots doing the tests and they've got it's like a pit stop they have shaved off 30 seconds on every single step they have and their stated strategy is we're gonna try to cut price by 50% every year and more than double volumes and we're gonna try to build this software layer to do the service on top of it and be the easiest to work with um, and we're just going to try to obliterate price so everybody else is dead and everybody's going to have to work with us because we're going to be the best to work with, the cheapest, the fastest, just higher quality. So they're pitching an Amazon model. Whether the cash flow side of that ever works out doesn't really matter because they have enough money to try that. And so, and Ambry, largely the same thing, I think not executing as well as Invite. 
So Vitae is just a very dangerous company to compete with because they're ruthless, they don't care about profits, they have the capital to continue to do that. They're a lot sharper technically, um, and they are much better with customers, and they're actually poaching all of, they've poached a lot of Myriad's top salespeople. We follow a lot of LinkedIn stuff to see where people are going and Twitter and all that. Um, and so we saw, you know, and, and Myriad got in that very dangerous point in healthcare where it started to look cheap. It started to look like, oh, it's, you know, it's a low multiple thing. And we, and it was a point where it looked profitable and low multiple and all these other things. And we were looking in the underlying market and the mar again, the market share shift was so dramatic that, you know, there was, if there was a slight summer breeze, all of a sudden this thing is losing money across the board and could actually potentially have a leverage issue. It went from a company that looks like they have a small amount of debt to where a company that's just going to be incinerating cash and may not have any staying power. And I also don't think they have their IP, which they tout a lot. I don't think it's worth anything. Um, and I haven't really been able to find anybody who's a practitioner who's been able to explain to me why it's worth anything. I mean, maybe some, you know, nuisance value. Um, you know, so that's another one we shorted um, and, and did pretty well with. But a lot of the things we're focusing on short on, on the short side are, are these types of situations where the street has some opinion here under the hood in the market. There's a really aggressive competition happening, and usually one of the one of the indicators here is it's usually a win for consumers. It's usually something where the consumer is pumped. Everybody's getting cheap genetic testing. Everybody's getting fast delivery of all their favorite foods. And then the question is, is the consumer surplus being created actually su sustainable by the underlying market? And the answer is often no. And then when you decompose that, there's usually a legacy player that is freaked out by how aggressive the other player is, but they're not doing the balance sheet. You know, it's like playing poker. Like the stack sizes are so different that one player is going, well, that guy's a fast and loose player. And I'm like, yeah, but he has 20x your stack. He can play as fast and loose as he wants. You're, you know, you're probably done unless you just keep hitting rocks. So, um, those are the types of things we like to short. Let's 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 talk about portfolio construction very briefly. Uh, yeah. In your note, two, you, you're targeting two hundred percent gross, thirty percent net. Is there any are you, is there any reason for that? Two hundred is the max. Two hundred is the max. Um, okay. Two hundred gross is max, and you know, depending on what's going on, we're going to be you know typically one hundred twenty-five to two hundred. Um, it tends to be it tends to look very similar to the kind of fabled tiger model. Of, you know, we're going to be net long, um, you know, we're shorting long and shorts or long and short for fundamental reasons. Um, we'll add in some sector coverage or, or you know, if we see really cheap hedges um, that allow us to maintain more long exposure, we'll take those. Um, but we're really trying to, across the board, we're trying to structure the book to allow us to ride out our, our, our strongest fundamental views. Um, so we're really not trying to be, we don't really care what the market's doing any given day or month. Um, and, um, the way we want to structure it is we want to be able to write out the, the view, write out the, uh, core fundamental views. And we want to make sure that on the short side and also on the long side, we don't have a liquidity mismatch. And so one of the things that can be nasty for a short seller is like, let's say it's your first day running a long short book. You come in, you go, okay, I'm going to buy, you know, a hundred dollars a stock. I'm going to short a $50 a stock and I'm going to short all these scammy companies and I'm going to, um, go along all these high quality companies. And then what tends to happen is when the market starts to puke, a lot of managers have to cut risk. And so they're going to sell those crowded names, but they're also going to buy a lot of those short names back, the common, the, the highly shorted names. So you can get pincered in a very brutal way. 
Um, and so I think like the way things are actually going to behave and, and that doesn't always show up if you do a multi-year regression or something like that. You need to look at a little more of, of kind of trailing metrics and where actual positioning is. Um, if you try to do an aggregate top-down analysis on that, you can get in some real trouble and I've seen some people have a bad time. Um, so we want to focus a lot on, okay, what is the actual liquidity profile of these names? What does the holder base look like? You know, there are some value names where like eight value hedge funds own 70 or 80% of the stock. And when one of those breaks, there's no floor. Um, or if the market starts to puke and they get redemptions, there's no floor. And so that's a that's a lot riskier of a stock over a short-term period of time than a stock that's overvalued even. Um, and I think you need to take those things into consideration a lot when you're when you're weighting things. So we really want to avoid anything where we th we see a big risk of holder capitulation on the long side. And on the short side, we really don't like anything that has high short interest, high borrow, very variable liquidity. Um, you know, anything that's really prone to short covering in a down move because the short book needs to be able to try to drive alpha, but also it needs to be able to actually work when the market goes down to provide liquidity so that we can buy more longs. You know, big reason, you know, I think John Hempton talks about this a lot. A big reason you want to be short is it allows you to go longer what you really like. Um, and so we really pay a lot of attention on the short side. You know, we're typically going to have probably 20 to 30 short positions. And some of those are baskets. Um, and you know, there's going to be two to four percent positions. Going over four percent, it gets a lot harder to manage because things can rip, and then you have a you know really big beefy position where one idiosyncratic thing is going to wipe out your whole portfolio construction. Um, so if we go to four percent, um, it needs to be pretty uh, the opposite of those positioning dynamics and structural dynamics we were talking about on the long side. Um, and near we also term look catalyst, at, you know, very, very yeah, that's, yeah, very near term catalyst that sort of sizing. So we look for we look for what we call phantom catalysts, and that's usually something like on page 200 of indenture, there's a clause that says, okay, at X date, you know, the the partner of the company can re revoke all financing. And so we've done two of those now. One, both pharmaceuticals. One was a company called Mankind Pharmaceuticals, and Sanofi had a clause where on a certain date they could pull all backing of this company. And going into that event, you saw everything online, any digital trace of anything about that company just disappeared. The clinical trial stopped, the new IP filing stopped, all the job postings stopped, the people who were on the team related to that product switched teams on LinkedIn. And you saw you know, job postings that were up for, to sell this product just vaporized. And we like those because people aren't focusing on it, either nothing happens, you know, something can obviously happen, but generally speaking, nothing happens or you make money. And there was a, almost the exact same setup with a company called Giron Pharmaceuticals, which is an oncology company. Same thing, um, the big sponsor that they were claiming as the white knight went completely dark. A lot of evidence that this was canceled. Either nothing happened on this day or we made money. Um, and so we did that. And, it, and with those positions, we will go a little over 4% if we can buy cheap call options and try to cap, because we don't really want to lose more than 1% on a short. Um, which you think about if we're doing two 4% positions, I mean, we're trying not to lose more than 25 or 50%, which is emblematic of how much skew there is in a short. Um, on the long side, we're trying not to lose more than 2% um, on a position. Um, and so we do look a lot at like volatility, you know, some other stuff like ATR, correlation positions. And, and we're going to be, that's a big reason why we're slower in taking positions. Because you can't, you know, you can't double down um, on a position if, you know, if it was already a 10% position and it gets cut in half and you add another 5%, then you're at a, then you're at a point where you might have to go, you know, your investors are going to look and say, okay, you lost over 10% of my money on one bet. And like, 
it, it's not, a lot of people think, especially on Twitter, there's a lot of people who think it's about whether you're right or wrong on that bet. It's like, no, you're hired as a money manager to make investments. Even if you think you're right, like, I don't think I have a fiduciary, uh, I think it's the opposite. Yeah, I, I don't think I have a fiduciary mandate to take my entire client base down on one bet that I refuse to, I mean, when, I, when I should have, as I've talked about, I should have lots of other ideas. And so sometimes you just got to think, now you can get around that really painful situation if you just have a s smaller position weighting going in. And then if things get weird, then you can go to a full position weighting and, and you're not taking as much uh, capital impairment risk. Um, and we also try to do things like, you know, um, we, we pay a lot of attention to underlying company level leverage and things like that. So it's easier to double down on a company that's 40% cash, no debt, and 20% free cash flow than it is to double down on, you know, 8x levered. Uh, housing distributor or something like that. So to, to, what it, to what extent are you influenced by Hampton Chainus? I know you have, I, I don't know the extent of the relationship with Chainus, but you know Chainus in, in some Yeah, I'm friends with way. both of them. Um, I'm, I mean, I mostly, I don't think, I don't think I've ever talked about portfolio construction with either of them. I've seen what they've said about it and right. I, you know, I pay attention to everything. I mean, we mostly talk about, um, you know, individual names. Um, and, uh, my impression of what Hampton does is that he's quite—he's almost quantitative, systematic across the short yep. book. That he might have 100 to 150 names, all pretty small. Yeah. I don't Hampton know is, as much about Chainus. Hampton has been able to build positive expectancy, or at least break-even expectancy, into, into shorting, and so he's got a hyper-diversified book. It's systematic. Um, I think both Hampton and Chainos, Most people don't understand how they run their. But you know, Chainos also runs a diversified short book, and I think this has been written about online. But you know he has he has a strategy where he's you know levered along the index more or less and short uh, short basket. He's one ninety ninety, right? I think something like that. I don't I don't have the docs, so um, I think I've seen him talk about that. In 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 those types of scenarios, I think a lot of people again one of the big mistakes that people make when they look, especially on Twitter, about money management is they get really obsessed with the ego benefit or detriment of winning a specific stock debate. And portfolio construction just absolutely dominates that. And so you want to structure everything so that even if you're horrifically wrong on an individual position, particularly positions where you have a lot of conviction. So we have we have rule sets in terms of how we actually um, size everything. You know, so all those parameters are checklists, and then we've got some you know weighting and things like that, and not really Markowitz, but um, some similar stuff. But you know, those guys can afford to be very wrong on many names. And, and Hampton, you know, and he's, I think he talked about Ameren, you know, he, he, he's, he is fairly routinely horrifically wrong on a name, but it's a 10 basis point short. And overall, because he's shorting 50 of those names, with those characteristics, it works very well. And also it allows him to maintain that long exposure. Same thing with Chena. So a lot of times people like, you know, make comments like, you know, Chena's only makes money once a decade or something like that. And I was like, not true. Yeah. China is actually like has one of the most robust track records. It's because it's again a, lot, a large portion of shorting is allowing you to maintain that long exposure. And if you can, you know, if you can be the guy who can buy, you know, last Q4 uh, or two Q4s ago, 2018, and you can, you're not, you're you're not ruffled. Um, that's a massive advantage, and that's right. really what's going to allow. You. I mean, so many fortunes have been built by having liquidity when other people don't. So a lot of the, about how we're looking at the short book is. We kind of have a standard, you know, short book that's designed to be able to definitely provide liquidity in market down moves, and we also think that their negative expectancy, uh, especially versus our long names, and sometimes it will be paired, but we don't necessarily explicitly think about the pairing. Like we might be, 
we have we have views, and then views aren't necessarily in the book. And I think because I think a lot of fundamental managers end up being technical traders because they only do fundamental work when the stock chart goes to some level, and they go, oh, maybe there's something to do now. And then they fire drill their analyst who sp stays up for two days calling people, and then he goes, I think sell side numbers are here, and I think the numbers are here. And there's some people who can do that well. It just sounds like a terrible life, and I also think you can get really burned that way. Um, and so for us, it's more about tracking views, and then we see prices go. So on a pair trade, if we have long, we have a basically, we're short in spirit, another name. If that name then squeezes 200%, then we might short some. Um, we tend to like like to wait until, especially if we see a position where there's no catalyst, no information flow, we'll wait till we see other people in a great position of pain. Sounds mean, but it's more like... It's a business. Well, it's more like somebody's pitching me like... I think I, I always think of like short pitches, especially from younger guys who are pitching shorts. They see this glorious victory because they've watched the big short and they've read these books and they've seen these interviews. And I'm like, before the glorious victory comes the war. It's like one of the things I really like about Mark Cahodes is like Cahodes is like he like lives on he the battlefield. the war, yeah. Yeah, and I'm you know, whenever I imagine what Mark Cahodes might be doing, it's always he's always just got like a Bowie knife and he's just like licking it, like he just lives for that. Um, I don't. I'm just you know I like not having to just fight all the time. Um, but you know I think on the short side, like how you construct the book, you need to make sure that you have. You know, I think the liquidity is, the, is, is number one over everything. Liquidity and positioning risk, in my opinion, especially in this market, are so important. So one of the things, I think it overrides everything else, like sector exposure, size, beta. Positioning is going to crush everything else. I think a big reason for that is if you're an active manager, you're probably going to have some correlation with other active managers. There's, probably, there's always someone else who is aware of a stock you're aware of, definitionally, because somebody owns the shares. And the issue right now is that there's like long short equity is the least popular investment product in the world, probably. Like people hate it right now. Yeah. And so if you have AUM as a long short manager, you're one bad day or one bad phone call away from having it being pulled. And that is causing, in my view, very tangible distortions in markets where it doesn't matter how much you like the name, you can't take a bath on it. You, people don't have the ability as an agent of somebody else to take that risk anymore um, because career risk is dominating everything. So I think. You know, the, you know, if active share is X percent of the of the float, um, that can be a lot riskier than people think because those active guys tend to move at the same time because they have to cover their ass. And so we are really, really focused on that above all because that's how we're getting a lot of our good entries is when we see some massive flush out of people have been wrong positioned one way or the other because of some event. Um, and so that's really the main thing we're we're parameterizing the book for right now is just that one factor because. And the other thing, I, you know, qualitatively talking to a lot of other hedge fund people, um, so many people I know can't put on what they're really convicted about at their jobs, whether it's family office or multi uh, pod shop or, or whatever, because there's a career risk angle. You know, I can't pitch that to my boss because that thesis has been around since 2015. I can't pitch that because every value guy is talking about that. I can't pitch that because that's just a Momo stock and we'll get hit for being, um, you know. And so if you look at all the memes on Twitter of, oh, he's just a idiot who buys high price to sale stocks or oh he's a value guy just buys dumpster fires there's enough memes now where almost any stock is subject to a meme and the problem is those actually influence manager um, manager behaviors pretty significantly and there's been some academic papers written on that that are really interesting I have to get the links from you I'll for shoot us. you it yeah 
let's let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about your Bangladeshi venture capital fund. What's the uh, what's the attraction to Bangladesh? Yeah. So when we started um, Tyro, my hedge fund, which has the illustrious honor of being the world's least consequential hedge fund. <laughs> there are a lot um, of guys competing for that honor. I'm one of yeah. them. Um, so we had, we had, you know, like three nickels and, uh, and a laptop to start with and, um, couldn't afford the Bloomberg uh, like me. No, we could not do the two, two guys in a Bloomberg. Uh, actually my, my partner said that yesterday on a, on a call. He, I was like, we were two guys in a Bloomberg. He's like, we couldn't afford a Bloomberg. I'm like, shut up. But, um, Anyway, so what we had to do to start out was, you know, we went around to people we knew who were, I was very lucky to grow up around a lot of traders and investors and operators and things, and that really gave me my focus on what's actually going on in the business. Um, and so I went to a lot of them that either trade their PAs or, or, or what have you, or a lot of, there's a lot of bored old ex-Wall Street people. Um, and they really like, you know, some of them, depending on how you approach, you have to have some social skills. They like a young buck that wants to really like has some fire in their belly about what they're doing. And so I had some people where I'd called them and basically like, look, I'm going to hassle you about the stock anyway. You know, I'm going to call you. Um, like, can we maybe set up like a consulting thing or can you you know, help me out with this? Cause you have more insight on this area or could you introduce me to, I need to talk to this person like that. So it was a lot of like, we just bootstrapped, we used Twitter, we used, you know, everything we treated getting coffees and all this stuff by, uh, coffee's happy hour is just meeting everyone like a job. And one of the reasons we ditched the Mugatu handle on, on Twitter was I'd, I'd like counted it up and I'd met like upwards of 500 people from Twitter. And I was like, everybody knows who I am. This is ridiculous. Um, and then there were like seven people who didn't know who were like, what? But anyway, so oh, a good friend of mine, Rahat, um, used to be, he used to work at Prince Street Capital where Rashmi Quatra, who you had on the show recently also worked and they're good friends. And um, he had left Prince Street and had helped run a, uh, he had a you know personal family member that was sick, and so he went to work for a nonprofit that was doing bone marrow matching. There's two big groups to do that. And then he started a VR tech company that does sports simulation, very, it was very cool stuff. But he was a really good, he used to cover kind of the Asian supply chain for computer chips. And so he was one of those guys where, you know, a new Nintendo game would be announced, and he would be like, oh, I need to go home and buy like this random niche company in Guangzhou because they make this one analog thing that's going into that. And it'll print next quarter because they must have shit that last quarter. And, and he would know that while we were like sitting at the bar. He just, that was how his brain works. He just has, and there's some guys like that that have physical supply chains like back of their hand. Um, and, and also just had very good intuition for where consumer tech trends are going software. And so he's been one of my best friends, my karaoke partner in crime for a long time. And, uh, um, and we've, we've both talked a lot and focused a lot on how tech is changing things globally. And so there's this theme that all of us are very interested in here and, and Rahat is as well, where um, the way tech is changing, there's, you know, you can't just say, okay, tech worked this way in, in the US and EM is here, so it's going to do this. There's these weird lag things and then there's really abrupt catch up periods. And so we've been looking at emerging markets and how technology is impacting them. And so I think a lot of people in the U.S. would be surprised to know that like Jakarta is one of the hottest tech scenes in the world right now. Um, and a lot of people are going to go, no, that's not, but it's crazy. And Vietnam is now increasingly blowing up. And now there's actually really interesting tech startups in Myanmar. And obviously India is a huge VC place in China. And, and now we're seeing VC funds and tech startups in Pakistan, in Egypt, um, in Venezuela. Um, and... What's interesting is that there's massive leapfrogging happening um, where they don't have this legacy. There was never dial-up. There was never desktop. It's mobile only. 
And so people are going from, in some of these countries, we've seen several countries where they had literacy, illiteracy rates of over 40% 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and now they have smartphone penetration of over 40%. So if you think about over a 30, 40 year period to go from almost half the population being illiterate to almost half the population having a smartphone, um, that's a profound societal shift and there's still issues around things like plumbing and whatnot that need to get fixed. But well, it's much harder to string twisted pair coaxial cable than it is to just put mobile yes. phone towers around and then connect to the. So that's that's what many of the developing emerging yeah. markets have have seen that occur. And then there's no reason why they can't. The technology, if you're a generation or two behind smartphone technology right. in the U.S., it's still very very modern technology. Right, and we, um, and I and I think that 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 assumed lag is getting shorter and shorter due to people like uh, Huawei and Xiaomi who are making very cheap and there's now African cell phone makers that are, you know, they're, they're iPhone 7s. They're not iPhone 10s, but like who cares? A lot of people in America sell iPhone 7s. Right. And the other thing is, and so what that's, what's happening with that is because there's all these smartphones, now these massive populations that are generally very young, you know, 35 and under, can now all communicate. And so there's a lot of books like Why Nations Fail and other things that basically say a lack of a lack of coordination and corruption and things like that are holding these countries back. I think what's happened in a lot of these countries is that there are too many people now who can talk to too many other people. It is forcing such a radical level of transparency into these countries that's never existed before. And the governments are kind of freaked out because they're like, when there's a when there's a protest now, it's not 20 kids in front of a school. It's holy shit, there's two million people in the streets. And right. so, like, we've seen this. And so I, I think a reason you're seeing a lot of these protests in these countries is just simply the ability to coordinate. And, you know, people, a lot of people go, well, they're upset about the corruption. I'm like, I think they've been upset about the corruption for a long time. Right, but couldn't but, do anything about it. Yeah. And so we've been very interested in just kind of this theme of, wow, what's, and the rate of change is so wild. So we've just been doing a lot of research around, and the thing is, because these are harder places to do business, um, a lot of these startups are having really innovative solutions to problems because in the United States, most tech businesses are essentially a layer that's being put on existing economic modules. And so I think most people in technology, this might offend some people, I think a lot of people in technology in the US don't actually know a whole lot about technology in terms of how actually solving problems. It's more like, okay, we're gonna use this software thing to tell these other things to do this. And in a lot of these countries, you're like, okay, we don't have physical logistics or we don't have any KYC, or we don't have, there are a lot of countries that do not have digital maps. And right. you don't realize that's a problem until you try to get around, let me tell you, it's a big problem. Um, and a lot of these countries, Google says their map works, and let me tell you, it does not. And it can cause you some big problems. Because um, I ended up in the very wrong side of DACA. So, over the last, between, starting like 2015 and now, we've really looked at this. And, we've, and I think looking at Asian tech, you can kind of like look around the corner in terms of what U.S. consumer tech will likely look at in several months. I think Asia, Asian tech broadly, um, a lot, there's the popular meme of, you know, Asia stealing our stuff, da, 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, they stole it, they have it, and now they're hauling ass ahead of us. And so, you know, I spent some time in Asia this summer. I try to go once or twice a year at least. And um, every piece of software I used was radically ahead of, the comparable software in the US. Um, and that was just mind blowing. So, so Rahat and I were looking at all these markets and we found that, you know, there's a lot of VC funds in all of these other countries. Um, and, you know, what, what he and I have both done is we kind of take deals around to our friends, LPs, family offices, whatever. There's a lot of people I know that I'm friendly with that are like, hey, I like you. Um, I don't want to invest in long short, but like, let's talk ideas. And 
So if I see an interesting private deal, I'll go, hey, I think this is cool. Um, and uh, here's the research I've done on it. And so we had, we had sent some of those deals around and some people had done some of them and throughout the rest of Asia. And um, we started to look at Bangladesh because Bangladesh in 2016 had its first real tech startup called Patel. It was Bangladeshi Uber and it was founded by this kid who was basically like, why do I have to do outsource IT for Microsoft? Why can't I build a real tech company? Um, guy's kind of like punk rock. His name is uh, Elias uh, Sane, who is just the man. I love that guy. And he kind of was like, this is bullshit. I can build, I can build a real tech company. And so he raised like three or $400,000 and Rahat um, was one of the guys he got emailed from and Rahat's a little bit of like a character. And so he, you know, he was like, hell yeah, this is awesome. I've been waiting for, he's from Bangladesh and um, he's lived in the US the last you know, 30 years. And he was like, this is great. I want this to happen. So he helped raise the initial money with the Prince Street guys and Rashmi, you know, and, um, and because Patau worked, all of a sudden it was the first time in Bangladesh that there had been a real like legitimate startup startup and all of a sudden there's you know so the, the shocking thing about Bangladesh is it's you know it's over 140 million people or 107 million people in the size of Iowa so it's insanely dense and like 60 plus percent of that population is under 35 and I think like 55 is under under 30. I think you got uh, 65 this, under 25 in your in yeah, your yeah. note which yeah, is very um, young. Yeah so it's an extremely young um extremely young population also tiny um, pay gap between women and, and men which i thought was interesting yes two other things that are very interesting about bangladesh you know it's, it's it is a it's a secular league legally it's a secular country but it is a predominantly muslim country but it's always had a female leader so that's very unique and so it's a country where if you try to go oh it's like this no you're gonna be wrong it's like a very unique country and um um, and so you have all these young people, the birth rate is under control, so you don't have like the Uganda problem of just, you know, way too many kids and you can't handle it. The pay gap between men and women is, is you know, women are relatively very empowered. They are working, they are making equal money. And there's this booming middle class of probably 40 million people who are making many multiples of GDP per capita. And when I was there this summer talking to people, like, it was very common for me to ask, how much do you make versus how much your parents made? And they would just deadpan. Oh, 25 times what my parents made. And they're like 23. And I was like, what? They're like, yeah, my dad makes, you know, X hundred dollars a month and I make, you know, uh, I make 18 grand a year or something like that. Um, and they're all online. They're all on Facebook. They're all on Reddit. They're all on YouTube. They're, you know, when I was in DACA the first night, we were in a cab and a guy held out in the window a copy of The Intelligent Investor on the street in DACA. <laughs> So that I can make I can make jokes about that for hours, but um, they have the exact same information. They're very what's going on. They're building on AWS and Azure, um, and you know there, there's there's been a little bit of a catch up speed getting things up to quality. But between 2016 and now, you've gone from like maybe six real startups. Patau worked, and so all these young kids go, "Wow, I can actually build something." And so you had people leave Patau, we called it the Patau Mafia, and they're starting companies. You have people coming out of universities, they're starting companies. You have other programmers from telecoms and places starting companies. And you actually have now reverse brain drain. So there are people leaving San Francisco and you know Seattle and other places. And we met several people that have left you know high six-figure, low seven-figure jobs to go back to DACA to build companies. And so there's no capital that's seeing this. So I'm seeing people who are leaving 800 grand a year guaranteed as a lawyer or something going back to build a startup in DACA. And the other thing is the startups are actually solving very real problems. It's not a new cat face app. You know, I'm really tired. I don't, I don't, I think a lot of this tech stuff we're doing now is aggressively superfluous. And it works because we're a very rich country. But 
these are co these are companies that are very very things are doing are very necessary and because they have to do tech plus some sort of actual um, economic function they build very strong moats and that's the thing that really people don't get about a lot of them is if they control part of the physical infrastructure and the whole software layer you can never rip them out um, and they're moving so fast versus the incumbents so a lot of these companies are going 50% month on month I mean it's I've never seen growth rates like this I've never seen people hustling like this and it's extremely tangible um, and also a lot of these companies like we've had we've shown several people this and they go well we think this market is just Bangladesh that's the TAM or we think the market's just DACA that's the TAM and actually a lot of these companies are going to be in four or five countries this year and two or three of them that we're about to announce deals in are already in three plus countries um, so they're being priced as if they're highly speculative seed deals from some kid in DACA which from a certain perspective is true but a lot of these companies, even at the C stage, already have 50 or 100 or 200,000 customers. You know, there's a company we're going to invest in a single-digit million-dollar valuation that already has a million and a half MAU um, and like 600,000 DAU. Um, that's, and and so and you you have a lot of these companies just have outstanding metrics. They're scaling. The economics actually work. Again, you have to do your bottom up. You have to do your bottom up work. Obviously, it's it's going to be a low hit rate. But you're talking about there's probably between 150 and 200 startups just in Dhaka right now. And so I was like, wow, this is amazing. I live in New York and I also don't speak Bengali. People there speak English so you can get by, but I don't speak Bengali, so I can't do like legal work and stuff like that. So Rahad said, I want to move back. And the reason we started was I said, I, he's like, this is amazing. My country is flourishing. I want to help this. I want to move back. I want to run, I want to hire a local team, smart people. Um, and I want to back these companies. And we saw how much ability there was to add value to the companies in terms of just back office stuff, marketing, um, legal compliance, accounting, data security, and really bringing in Western and, and British global expertise. And we, we're basically tapping the hedge fund network of all the people you know at these companies and saying, hey, would you look at this guy who's, you know, you're trying to do this thing in the US, that's cool. These guys are trying to solve this for the first time ever in their country. You know, so there's one company looked at it's the first reliable blood testing in the country and things like that. So we're bringing in advisors, we're bringing in back office support. Um, and we're really trying. We're going to try to support companies regardless of whether or not we're going to invest in them, and that sort of helps us vet them in a sense. So we just go and say, you know, hey, can we introduce these guys? Can we help you out? Get to know the founders over a number of period, over a period of time. You know, once every few months, we're going to make you know an investment, and um, and so Rahat's going to live there and manage a whole team there, and, and myself and a few other people on the GP side are going to be on the investment council. We're going to do analysis and really help recruit expertise for this. Can I just um, ask the, the the thing that occurs to uh, the thing that occurs to me the difficulty with um, emerging and developing is rule of law and getting an exit yes. or getting uh, getting your money back. Like, how how do you get comfortable around questions like that? Yeah, so there have been some exits. Um, Alibaba and Tencent both have taken prox director proxy states stakes in the country. Um, I think this is a this is an investment where you have to really understand what the deal is. If you want to this to be a three, four, five, three or four year exit, you, and especially in emerging markets, it's not generally that you can't get liquidity, it's you can't generally get liquidity at a specific time. You can't bank on, I can get liquidity next month or in six months. Um, so we've structured the fund to be a very long life vehicle. It has up to a 10 year life. Um, and a lot of these companies within the next year or two, again, are gonna be multinational companies. Um, so. There have been exits. We're building things that are, we're very focused on things that are very strategically important and, and likely would be an acquisition target or uh, IPOable or something like that. We're not, we can't finance. Is there a Bangladeshi stock, stock exchange? 
There is, yes, Stock and Stock Exchange. Um, and you can't underwrite a perpetual cash burn machine. So we have to underwrite these things through cash flow positive where they can actually start to compound internally. There isn't the, the in, an ecosystem of capital necessary to um, lots of just kind of, not lots of follow Yeah, you, you can't just rely, you can't play a you know, Keynesian beauty contest. You have to actually do fundamentals, which I love, but uh, it's frustrating some other people. So a lot of these guys were, talk, were talking about one to three years to um, really robust cash flow and then reinvestment. And then if you're investing a fall on, on that, um, it's about uh, what's the ROIC on, on growth. And um, so what we're doing for the fund is there's a main fund. And so investors in the main fund can also get access to co-invest for those follow-on rounds. So basically, if the bet's working, you can dial the bet up if you'd like. Um, and a lot of what we're going to be doing is kind of after we announce these first few investments, we're going to start putting out a lot of content around here's what's actually going on here. Because this is a story nobody's heard yet. And part of the reason why I wanted to be involved versus just farming out to somebody was this is one of the last few remaining unique ideas I've ever – I don't know how many more of these are going to be. And you know, I read, I grew up loving all these heroic investors who were doing all this stuff for the first time. And now even the craziest idea how I take it to somebody and they're like, yeah, I did that in the eighties. And you know, I'm like, I finally can do something that's going to actually make a positive impact, produce good returns, I think, and, um, is unique. And, and, um, and we think we can build a really strong relationship with the startup community in not just Bangladesh, but greater Asia. And so a lot of this is about how do you structure partnerships? How do you bring in people? So on the exit side, I think I think we're not as concerned about that because we're trying to take a very long-term approach and we're trying to make sure these things actually can. We we want to be in a position where we don't need to exit um, in the in the short term. On the legal side, though, um, the companies tend to be structured in um, Singapore. They're not they're not VIEs. They're direct ownership, and there is precedent that you can reach in and remove a director. And we have um, one of the top tier law firms in Bangladesh and top tier forensic accounting and things like that, uh, working with us in Bangladesh to you know, verify that the legal standing is good, the compliance is good, um, that all that's good. We've met with Bangladesh Bank and also VITA, which is the investment authority. Um, so we've, we've, we've uh, interfaced directly with the government. Also, Rahat's father is a fairly prominent person in Bangladesh. He was the former head of the, the Chamber of Commerce, and also he is the head of North-South University, which is the largest private university in the country. Um, and so we have an ability, you know, I think this would be a little more dangerous if we were sort of a faceless actor and we could just get swatted like a fly, but we're being very upfront about going and speaking to people about what we're doing, what our intentions are, things like that. And we're getting the best counsel, um, available and we're talking to a lot of comps and other people like that. So we've really, really, my focus over the summer was really focusing on vetting all of that out. Same thing in Singapore. So the, you know, the other issue there is, is the FX. So we are having the company, the companies are structured in Singapore, held in Singapore, the operating subsidiary in, in Bangladesh. The cash is held until it needs to be actually spent is held in Singapore so that there isn't the FX risk. Um, and if a company is gonna be spending cash in the short term, we expect the return on that cash to be greater than the currency depreciation risk. But we don't want them, you know, if they do 20% dilution and they have that amount of the company's value in cash, I don't want to take Bangladeshi Taka risk on that. Um, particularly like I think right now they've got, you know, some smaller, banking issues um, that you know are not relevant to what we're trying to invest in, but we're trying to really control the jurisdictional and currency risk as well as you know, compliance risk. Um, so we've really vetted out a lot of that stuff in terms of how we get in, how we assist, and then the exits. I think you know there's going to be opportunities for secondaries, but I think acquisition is likely most of the um, exits. Well, let's change gears entirely and talk about the dating paper. 
Uh, yeah. Fascinating paper. I've read it a few times. Uh, just g- give us a, a flavor of what, what is the, what, what's, the, uh, what's the thesis of the paper? Okay, so um, everybody's unhappy with online dating, but everybody's online dating. That's kind of the thing. That was, the, that was, the, that was the impetus for it? Well, I mean, we'd, we'd done a lot of work. Actually, this was a former Rahat and I project as well. Is Rahat and I both found this market so interesting. It was growing like wildfire. And I'm a, I'm a little bit of a stand-up comedian, and so I, I actually started my Twitter account, which a lot of people may know, to test stand-up comedy jokes. And comedy is interesting because it tells you what's on the fringe of culture and what's becoming mainstream because they'll talk about the thing everybody knows. Like The best thing as a comedian is somebody everybody believes but nobody wants to talk about. So for several years, it was like, I know you're on Tinder, and it was a cheap joke. And we, we saw these user metrics continue to grow, and it was always regarded as a sideshow. And then it got to a point where, like, Rahat and I and a bunch of other people were looking at it and saying, like, how do you even meet somebody offline anymore? Like, can you even do it? I mean, obviously, you can go to a bar or something like that. But one of the things that was really noticeable was that people don't make introductions anymore um, below a certain age. It's because it's and, – and, and generally, the reason is it's just too risky. If it doesn't work out, you know, you blow up the friend group. Um, we go, this is like really interesting. At the same time, we saw the these stories about how divorce is skyrocketing. We saw a lot of claims that American family formation is dying. Um, we have a big thesis at Tyra about affordable housing, so we look a lot at household formation and, and housing. And we said, this is just really interesting. And so we, we've kind of read everything about it. And we've had, we've had like 10 different views about how we think this market's working. And we finally got to one where, and we might just be overfitting, but we finally got to one where every incremental piece of data we're getting really clicks it in. And also spending time in Asia and the Middle East really kind of made some things click. And so basically the idea is that online dating is a transparent market like the stock market. It's allowing unlimited liquidity on either side, um, which is causing pricing transparency. Pricing transparency, nobody is actually happy with pricing transparency because everybody, everybody, even if they're getting a better price, everybody thinks they're gonna hit above their weight. Everybody thinks like, I'm gonna be the genius who buys the cheap stock and makes all this money. And so when you have to trade things at a fair price, like everyone is on average less happy. And so I think that's why everybody's not happy, <laughs> is everybody's getting kind of a fair price. And then there are some adjustments to that. So there's some distortions about, okay, it, we generally think it's an efficient pricing mechanism, but what are the, what are the frictions there? And so the big friction is the, the visualization of dating. And so everything now is Instagramified. It's about how you present yourself in photos. Um, and also there's other things like time of day. And so w- you know, we've talked to everybody, all these companies, women get at least five times as many inbound likes as men do, and in many cases, 25 times or more. And so it doesn't matter if you're the nicest guy ever, or if you're really good looking even, if you're six pages back in the queue on some of these websites, like, they're never gonna see you. It's like, you know, it's like when you get an email from somebody back in like eight months being like, hey, completely lost this. I mean, you're just, it's not going to happen. So there's some, there's some structural dynamics in terms of the UI um, that are really changing how dating behaviors are happening. And so, and so that's, a, that's a pricing inefficiency. And there's a few other things I can dig into. The, the, there, are two, there are a few fascinating charts. You know, I think I've seen that. I think one of them, I think, came from Plenty of Fisher. I've seen it before where the distribution yeah. of men rating women is basically a normal distribution from most attractive yeah. to least attractive, the tails, as you'd expect. But then the women rating, rating men is a totally different distribution where yeah. women think that most men are, are unattractive. And then the for, for most attractive, the, the score, and I'm guessing it's rounded, is 0% of men. Yeah. Women regard 0% of men as most attractive. And so then how does that dynamic play out on a, on a dating app? I don't think that's 
entirely true. I'm guessing it's I rounded do, I down. Guess, uh, well, I think, I think it's slightly misinterpreted. So, um, one one note is when you're if the average female user has a much higher match rate than the average male user. How is that and possible? So, um, because a lot of people are just not getting matches. Because a lot of people are just never getting. There's inbounds, outbounds, and then you basically have a power law distribution where you have like. If it, I guess everything has to clear, but the women, um, on average, if they have an if they have an inbound or they produce an outbound, they will get. Um, I'm sorry, the absolute numbers are different. It's a percentage wise, and so women are going to say yes on a far smaller percentage of the pool. So if you have a hundred women, they're saying yes. They're all saying yes on ten men, and then men, those ten men tend to say yes to basically all hundred women. Right. If that makes sense. So it's like. The match rate is different from the absolute number of. So there's a lot of people who are. That's the way that's end up working out. Um, um, but I think the issue is there is if you're playing, uh, you know, it's like if it's like if you go to a buffet and you can have whatever you want, you're gonna you might be a little pickier about. Well, maybe not in America, but you might be a little pickier about what you get because you can have whatever you want. And so I think some of the online dating data literally it really amplifies that because, you know. If you if you can have whatever you want, you're probably going to be a little more selective. You're going to be like, it's like, would you like a Toyota or a Ferrari? Would you like any of these five Toyotas or one, or this Ferrari? And you're like, I don't really need the Toyota. Like, just give me the Ferrari. And I think that's kind of what's happening. So I think it's a little, you know, I don't think women are as as harsh as, as what's happening. Um, but I think there are, you know, there's it's an exaggeration. Um, I think the, uh, the implications for the dating market are, are sort of interesting, but I think more interesting are the implications more broadly for society. Like, what, what does it do yeah. to society when what, what do these apps do to society? Yeah, so I think that this is it's counterintuitive because some people look at it and they go, people aren't getting married as much. People are, you know, I'm from a Catholic family, and so people are living in sin and and all of this, and and they focus on all these unethical traits, and I think. I'm a big believer that a lot of the things that we have culturally and and religiously and whatever are logical ad adaptations for like a different era. Right. Um, so if you go through like a lot of the the Old Testament or whatever, a lot of the rules made a lot of sense under the context right. they were written. Um, and that's that's really where this conflict is happening is we are still benchmarking against that versus the world we actually live in right now. And so what's happening here is um, because everybody has unlimited and instant access to dates um everybody not only can go on a date but also if you're on a date you're aware you can get another date and also as you go on more dates you really know what the dating pool looks like right and so when i talk to like my grandparents or my grandparents siblings or something like that about what their dating was like the, they got married ball or something, well, something like that, but one I mean, one chance in the season yeah and um so you know they got married on like their you know I know some people got married to the first person they kissed. I got married on the second or third date they ever went on was the, was the person they married. And so the, the pool you were choosing from was was very small. It was people your family knew. It was maybe people you met at school, church, and like a few other places. And, and, and it hasn't, you know, I think we, some people view us ourselves as very progressive in the United States, not very progressive, but like on a global standard, um, it's really, really risky for women to date. Like, there's a lot of physical risk. There's a lot of reputational risk. It's really bad, and so that dynamic's even stronger in other countries. 
And so now younger people have access on a no-risk basis to an unlimited size pool. And so if you have an unlimited size pool where there's, you know, there's no, no called strikes like Warren Buffett always talks about. So you're just going to say no unless you're really, really interested. On the flip side, guys typically just go yes, 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 because they're guys. But um, as a result of that, the stakes of dating are just generally much lower because it's very commoditized. And so when you're younger and you know, you're know you skinny and in shape and you look good and you're having fun and you're not looking to make a commitment, um, you're not going to get married. You're going to go on a lot of dates. You're going to have a lot of bad dates. And the bad dates are going to inform what you can't really tolerate in a relationship. And that's going to go forward. Um, and so people are not getting married younger. And so marriages from like 18 to 25 are collapsing. Um, but by the time you get to 30, 35, marriages are going up. And what my hypothesis is that, um, and, and the divorce rate of overall marriages is declining. And so my hypothesis is, look, when people are young now, they're dating more, meaning they have more information on the market. If you think about this like an economics problem, they have more trading experience. So they probably are better able to price things. Um, they are better aware of their opportunity costs. So nobody who grows up in the digital, uh, the, the online dating era is ever going to have like the classic rom-com mid forties. Like sometimes I just wonder like what else is out there? Like if, if you're in my age bracket, like you know what else is out there. You're like, no, I'm really good. Like I, I don't want to go back out there. Um, and so it's causing like you can price your opportunity costs better. You can price the market better. You have more experience and, um, and you don't feel the need because the pool is so large. You don't feel like you need to marry as soon because you might run out of options. It's clear there's a lot of options. And so people are getting married much later. Um, but I think they're getting married on a much more informed basis. I think it's also because there's so much information communicated and because there's so many iterations, I think a lot more conversations are happening. I think, you know, I think people are having conversations about personal finance, about what your actual lifestyle is. I also think this renter's generation topic which kind of lays on top of uh, the online dating is causing, um, so there's an interesting statistic, cohabitation is up with younger people, so people move in with their boyfriend or girlfriend, but the conversion from cohabitation to marriage is down. And so there's a, that's another evidence of there's more trials. So you're gonna go in and you're gonna actually figure out, okay, do I like this person? Do I like this person relative to all my other options? Okay, then we're gonna actually try to live together. Can we actually live together? We might really like each other, but we might kill each other if we live together. You're figuring that out. So it's just a lot, all these things I think you can all think of as more trading volume that's causing pricing to come. And then when people are getting married, um, they're getting married with a lot more information about themselves, about other dating options, about the person they're marrying, and, and divorce rate appears to be dropping. Do you think it's curious that a finance guy has done this analysis on the dating market, which is probably, I was trying to think of an analogy and I don't know whether it's like a reformation or if it's, um, if it was like a Jerry Maguire kind of, uh, <laughs> or, or I went with Carrie Bradshaw eventually, but yeah, but then it's not, uh, it's not any of the, uh, more social sites that pick it up. It's you picked up by institutional investor and chat to Joe yeah. Weisenthal on, on Bloomberg. I, I yeah. just think it's a funny kind of direction that, that, that 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 observation took. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's based around this kind of Twitter brand I built, which was, you know, largely light spirited and supposed to be funny and, and making jokes and stuff. And um, will the actual Twitter bit, account change or is the is just the name? Just the name. I mean, I mean, I I can't. I just make deleted jokes some old tweets. I saw that. Yeah, I mean, I I just I didn't know what was on there. Like, I've just been gunning out offhand comments for like you know. 
and, and and literally what I was doing, you know, in like 2015, 2016 was I would I would just tweet all these jokes and then I would go look at which ones people liked. I'd take those out and that was my stand-up set. And I it seemed like I was like freakishly good. And I was like, no, you just didn't see the 80 ones that panned. But um, I think what, what we have this thesis and there's a reason we published the paper a higher level beyond the thesis. And that is that um, there the average person on the internet doesn't have a lot of stuff to say that's really high value. But there are nominally a very large number of people that have really good insight, particularly on particularly in fields that are fast moving and that are changing. Because even if you were to like as a hedge fund hire an expert network, you're going to get some guy who has a really, really nice pedigree, but he hasn't really been in the trenches in probably 10 years. And if, if he's telling you is it's because he's calling a guy who's actually in the trenches. If you can actually, you know, I'm trying to do kind of for industry work what Patrick O'Shaughnessy and some of these other guys are talking about in terms of build, share, learn, repeat, where I'm not advocating that people go out and buy matched stock. I'm saying this is what I think is going on in this industry. And I think it's a topic a lot of people are interested in because it's vaguely related to sex. And also everybody's frustrated with it. Nobody understands. Like everybody, you go to any bar or any stand-up show or any of these things, everybody's talking about how they're not happy with online dating. And so we have a view. We think why we think we understand why people are still doing it. We think what the impacts are. We think there's some ways you can game it. Um, and we think there's a lot of um, investment implications, and specifically in consumer, in in uh, online dating itself. And how do you hack those. it, Dan? So how you hack it is you you well I, yeah I'll, I'll hack I'll talk about the paper hack and then I'll talk about how you hack online dating because I do know how to hack online dating. But um, uh, and you can't hack Tinder. Tinder is the one you can't hack. And like everybody gets frustrated, and I'm like, no, Tinder is a one variable, yes, no. There's no gaming there. But um, the idea with the paper was we're going to publish papers like this, and put it out there, and and just kind of use it to solicit feedback. And so when we put this paper out, we've had something like, you've had well upwards of 500,000 people click on it, and we've had 50 plus people reach out that either work at one of these dating companies that want to talk about our views, and you know a lot of them called and said like this is really interesting because this corroborates what I'm kind of seeing, but I hadn't really put it together. Um, we took a dig at Facebook dating, so we had like some Facebook people that, you know, wanted to want to talk to us about it. Um, you know, and, and we also had people who run matchmaking companies, who run startups, who all these different people that I would never be able to find um, because they don't have a presence or like that. All reach out, all want to talk, and and um, so it's just great in terms of okay, now I have a uh, a list of all these people in the industry that I can reach out and talk to anytime because they know I'm interested in researching this. And also, they know that like, I'm not I'm not researching this, and I'm not talking to them because I'm looking to like trade the stock tomorrow. And that's not what I do. Um, and I think that you know, I think this is a model we can sort of scale and use to continue to build a network in terms of how you date actually the online dating platforms themselves. Um, you know, there's a few things. Like one, there are actual dating advice services that kind of look at things, and, and 90 plus percent of the time when they look at it's usually men. Um, Take a so better photo. Well, it's not. It's not just. It's not. Yeah, it's like you don't have a high quality photo, or your photos are weird. Like you have one good photo, and the other ones are like really bad and grainy. But usually, the man has not actually filled out the whole whole profile. Like they get a little bashful. They don't have an actual description, or it's like a joke. And it's okay to be a little funny, but like somebody doesn't want to think that you think going on a date with them is a joke. And like I, I have a problem with this because I, the more uncomfortable a situation gets, the more I need to make jokes. Um, and I have bombed many a date with bad jokes, but um, um, so filling out the filling out the profile correctly. But I think that the other two things are um, on sites like OkCupid and others like that, where you have a lot of information on the user. A lot of this is just kind of like obvious. Like it's have a fully written out profile that has interesting things about you. When you have pictures, put pictures of stuff that's interesting. Are you doing stuff? It, you show off your attributes that you want to show off. Um, and then when you actually, if you're going to reach out to somebody, 
you should actually do the work to reach out and figure out, you know, find something that's a hook. I think the other thing people forget is a lot of these are designed to make you click. And so if you find, you know, people that have a demonstrated ability to, to have um, uh, deferred payoffs are typically going to be a little less susceptible to that. And so finding somebody that I, I think it's better to find somebody that has a really strong passion about something that's very interested in something, specifically something you're interested in. Um, you're going to have a little more luck there versus just like, you know, Billy and Karen trying to match. And, you know, I like going to EDM concerts on on the Saturday. Like that's just a very efficient market. Um, so I, th I think a lot of it. And then the, the biggest the biggest hack, I think, is time of day because of that queue dynamic. And so um, I think they took it off. I don't know because I haven't been on the apps in a while. But OkCupid used to show you when breakfast. people. Yeah, well, you know. Um, and... Um, and, uh, oh, I mean, I was on them for a long time, but um, um, they used to show you when people were online. Um, and so I think when, it, when you send your message is very important. So a lot of times guys tend to, is there a polite way to say this? Guys tend to Lights send messages yeah, when they're currently looking for a girl. Um, uh, a wink, wink, nod, nod. And that is not good because they all you come in. you plan ahead. Yeah, you got to plan ahead. They're not written with the brain in your skull. Right. It's just not a good, not a good move um, across the board. And so, like, I, you have to write. You know, typically people check these things either before work or after work. Largely is after work. So you want you want messages going out, you know, in the three to five p.m. range, so that they're there when somebody gets off work and is checking something. Particularly because if it's after work and somebody, you know doesn't have a happy hour or a date or something to go to, then they're kind of there specifically like looking for that. And you need to write something that's actually thoughtful or funny or insightful. And and the, and the other thing is you got to figure out for you and for what you're looking for, which dating platform is better because they all have very different, you know, UIs and they're all gameable in a different way. So like Hinge, for example, has individual widgets that are like topics and pictures and things. And you can comment and respond to an individual one. And so if you're somebody that likes to make jokes, or if you have something interesting to say, you can make a very contextual response, and that's really good. On OkCupid, you can write them a six-page love letter if you want. Um, and you also have to think about those audiences. Do you are recommend that people write those six-page love do letters? Do not. Do not. Never do that. Unless you can write like one of the funniest. It, it would have to be. It's a very high-risk, high-reward situation. I mean, I'm sure somebody could write like a McSweeney's type piece that would crush it but i don't recommend that that's not a great move um and then i also think like um things like uh eHarmony and, and others like that that are explicitly like eHarmony you have to pay and apply they say they're like using all these metrics eHarmony just screens for are you desperate are you like really seriously looking for a relationship <laughs> right now and then they give you a very limited number of matches so that you don't to reverse that dopamine feedback loop and so there's some things like that where the more slow the dating mechanism, the more people are going to be seriously looking for a relationship, which is kind of counterintuitive. Um, but everything's optimized to dopamine. So if you want, um, and then they, there's all these increasingly niche dating sites. So whatever you're interested in, I would look for, there's probably, you know, there's a farmer. Value investors farmer. only. I, that might exist. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> there would be like, you know, 25 women and, and 30,000 men and it would get really weird. And I, I, man, I would love to start that just to read the conversations. That would be weird. But um, yeah, you've got all these, all these strange things, and not strange. You just got niche conversations. So you got to go all that. But main thing is about um, time of day, 
quality of photos, quality of what's in your profile, um, uh, making that really hooky. The other thing is like there's a lot of a lot of times guys look at there are like widgets added so you can you can put your Spotify profile in, you can put your uh, Instagram in, and people anything that's missing from your profile looks either lazy or like you might be fake. And so a lot of times like I, I think some of the things that assuming you get on assuming you get the time of day from the other user, um, you need to understand that like they are you're pitching them and anything that's lazy is gonna come off cost as lazy. The other thing to, the other thing you realize I got Tinder versus the others is the average time a person on Tinder spends looking at a another Tinder thing I, I think is two seconds. Um, so first photo is very important, but honestly like. If you're not an eight or above, I don't know why you're on Tinder. Like it's just not, <laughs> it's not, it sounds really bad, but it's, it's a purely visual medium where somebody's going to spend under two seconds looking at you and people spend all this time trying to hack that one. And I'm like, cool. Okay. All of the others like hinge is structured for you to be able to show off cool stuff. Hinge is made so you can't actually swipe very fast. It takes a second for profiles to learn things. So Tinder hinge gives you an opportunity to like show off. Um, Bumble, Bumble has done this weird thing where they're like, want to be women forward. And the, the big culture shift always happens in online dating when women get comfortable with the platform and they realize, oh wait, I can go on this platform and now I don't have any risk. I can just say no and it doesn't matter. And that was what was really sticking out in the Middle East and Asia is that, um, you had women that had never been able to have any agency in their own dating who were all of a sudden on Tinder because... First the guys join, then some and girls are like, oh, that's sketchy, and then some girls join, and then those girls basically tell the other girls that, hey, you realize you can just say no, and they don't know you said no, and you get access to millions of guys instead of your brother's five friends, and they're like, wait a minute, that's awesome, and um, and so like Bumble's tried to really, and, and actually Bumble's doing quite well in a lot of those markets because they're explicitly putting forward the women power angle, and but one of the things it does is like. Um, Men can pay to extend a match. So once there's a match, the woman has to message the man within like 24 hours, I think. And men can pay to extend the match. And actually, a lot of the female users will only message a guy if he <laughs> extends the match because they're like, okay, we matched, but now like, are you really interested? And like, I'm just you have skeptical. to pay per person. No, you pay like the subscription, okay. which is actually kind of genius because Tinder and some of these other platforms. Um, the users that pay have the worst success rates. So it's people who like can't get any matches. So they pay Maybe thinking that more. Right. And they think it's going to give them an edge, but actually it's the highest prediction of, of, of bad results. And so what all these platforms have tried to do is shift it away sort of that it's not just changing your odds. It's, it's something else like tender gold and all that. But Bumble has done this great thing where the match extend thing basically is a way to make a guy have to say, yes, I'm interested twice. And to a girl, it costs nothing. And so they're just like, Ladies, would you like to like be double sure that guys are interested? And they're like, yeah. And then the guys, they're like, pay up. And it's working. I think it's incredibly frustrating and annoying, but I think that's kind of part of the idea. Um, so it's, there's all these different monetization things happening there. It's fascinating stuff, Dan, but we've, uh, we've come up on time. If folks are looking to get uh, in contact with you, uh, how do they do that? Uh, yeah, you can. We have a website, tyropartners.com, um, or you can email me at dan at tyropartners.com, um, or you can obviously go on Twitter at supermugatu. Um, we are uh, extremely online and always available. Thanks so much for having me, Toby. Yeah, my pleasure. Dan McMurtry, Tyro Partners. And sorry, what's the name of your VC firm? 
Anchorless Bangladesh. Anchorless Bangladesh. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it.